it's a myth. We tend to think that the people who do the best are these strong extroverts. The data don't bear that out. We've got introversion and extroversion raw. Top leaders, meaningful conversation, actionable advice, bulldoze complacency, ignite inspiration, create impact. Produced by Southwestern family of companies. This is the Action Catalyst. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. Daniel Pink, he's a behavioral scientist, the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of several books, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us in 2009, definitely one of the biggest ones. And then he wrote the book, part of what we're going to talk about today, To Sell as Human and When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Anyways, Daniel, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So one of the big catchphrases, I think, from your book was, we're all in sales now. Yeah. So um, when you look at how people actually spend their time at work, you realize that no matter what their job title is, a huge portion of what they're doing every day is selling. Now, what we did is we put together a survey of about 7,000 full-time workers in the U.S., and we found that people are spending 40% of their time persuading, convincing, cajoling, essentially selling. Now, they're not necessarily selling a Winnebago or selling consulting services or selling encyclopedias or selling kitchen appliances, but what they are doing is they are trying to get their employees to do something different or do something in a different way. That's selling. Uh, they are employees trying to get their boss to stop doing stuff stupid. That's selling. Uh, <laughs> you're trying to get someone to see their point of view. That's selling. They're working on a project. They're trying to get that talented person down the hall to work on their project rather than another project. They're selling. And so um, when you actually look at the ground truth of what people do day-to-day on the job, um, we are spending a huge portion of time selling, even though the majority of us do not have that word sales or selling in our job title or job description. You refer to that as non-sales selling. You know, you're, you're, you're selling, but the records are not ringing. And the denomination of the transaction isn't dollars or euros or rubles, but time, effort, attention, energy, zeal, commitment, those kinds of things. Part of the currency there is trust. No question. Absolutely right. Trust is essential on so many different domains and so many different aspects of business. But, I mean, it, you know, it almost goes without saying, but I'll say it. You know, if, if, if someone doesn't trust you, they're not going to buy something whether they're buying a car or whether they're buying an idea. Mm-hmm. One of the things you also introduced in the book is you said it used to be caveat emptor, buyer beware, but now you're saying the world has changed to something else. So can you highlight it's not caveat emptor, but now it's what and why? It's uh, well, we've gone from a world of buyer beware to a world now of seller beware. Now, how this happens is extraordinarily important. Most of what we know about sales, whether you're selling, again, whether it's non-sales selling, selling an idea, concept, or whether you're selling a Winnebago. Most of what we know about sales has come from a world of information asymmetry, where the seller always had more information than the buyer. When the seller has more information than the buyer, the seller has the edge. Worse, the seller can take the low road. The seller can rip you off. Right? Information asymmetry is why we have this principle of buyer beware. Buyers have to beware because the seller has an edge. And, and this is true from the very first commercial transaction in human history, you know, whatever it was. Some guy selling a goat to someone else for shells or something like that. The guy selling the goat knew a lot more about the goat than the guy buying the goat. Information asymmetry has defined what sales is for a very long time. However, in the last 10 years, 
everything's turned upside down. Is it less and less and less and less and less do we live in a world of information asymmetry? We live in a world of, of much greater information parity where the buyer of something can actually find out a huge amount of information, sometimes as much of the, often as much as the seller, sometimes more than the seller. Okay, that's a huge deal. And you see this in, you know, basically buying a car. It used to be if you bought a car, the car dealer would know a lot more about cars, a lot more about Toyotas, a lot more about Toyota Camrys than you ever could. Buyer beware. Now you can go into that Toyota dealership and, and you know almost as much, sometimes more than that car salesman knows about cars, Toyotas, and, and Camrys. So point of all this is that a world of information asymmetry is a world of buyer beware, but a world of information parity is a world of seller beware. It used to be that buyers had not much information, not many choices, and no way to talk back. Buyer beware. Now we're in a world where buyers have lots of information, lots of choices, and all kinds of ways to talk back. That's a world of seller beware. And this is as huge a change in business as anything we have uh, had to confront. It is one of, to me, one of the biggest cultural and economic changes in the world of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. That's the way the world works now. And mm -hmm. salespeople who don't adjust to that are going to be in a world of hurt. Yeah. So you talk about, you know, the old ABCs of selling and sort of the classic, you know, salesy stuff. And, right. and you introduced the new ABCs of selling. The first one is attunement. Right. So attunement is perspective taking. It's basically, can you get out of your own head and see things from someone else's point of view? That's all that it is. Now, it ends up being enormously important in any kind of sales and persuasion. Why? Because today we have, whether we're a boss, whether we're a teacher, whether we're a salesperson, we have very little ability to force other people to do things. We have very little coercive power. So when we lack that kind of power, we need almost the flip side of that, which is, can you get out of your own head, see things from someone else's point of view, find common ground? Um, and this ends up being one of the most profoundly important elements of sales in a world of seller beware. Uh, and it's something that human beings, you know, are not often not that great at. Uh, fortunately, we're not inherently great at it. Fortunately, we can learn how to be a lot better at it. Is it right to call it empathy? Is that part of it? Empathy, uh, sort of. I mean, empathy is related to perspective taking, but perspective taking is a little bit more hard-headed than empathy. With empathy, you're sort of understanding how somebody is feeling. But actually, there's some interesting research showing that in, in many kinds of sales, just understanding what they're thinking is as important, if not more so. So it's uh, particularly true in negotiation, that there's some interesting research showing that if you direct people in a negotiation to focus on the other side's feelings and, the, and, one, and other people to focus on the other side's thoughts and interests, that in general, the people focused on the thoughts and interests do better than the folks who are focused on the emotions and feelings. What you want is you want to get both channels. You want to get the thinking channel and the emotional channel. But the, the reality of our lives is that we have very, very heavy loads on our brain. And so if you're negotiating in real time, you're trying to remember what the terms are, you're trying to remember what your objectives are, you're trying to remember a whole variety of facts, you're making decisions on the fly, it's very hard for us to keep everything in our head. And so getting, then you say, oh, you have to have the emotional channel and the thoughts and interest channel and that's sometimes hard for us to do. So if you're overloaded, focus on the thoughts and focus on the interest. The other thing about that is that there's some good evidence showing that that is the key to in just overall persuading inside of a company, say, that's the key to persuading up. Um, that when you persuade up, 
uh, you're much better off focusing on the other person's thoughts and interests than you are on the feelings and emotions. My view in terms of persuading, selling to people higher in the organization is, it is my own view, I don't have data to support this, but bosses always put people into two categories. You know, the people who report to them into two categories. People who make my life easier, people who make my life harder. And you want to be in that first category of people who make the boss's life easier. That's an interesting perspective. So again, getting back into the data, when you talk about entunement, one of the common things is, oh, you know, if you're going to be great in sales, you got to be an extrovert. Can you talk about how extroverts and introverts perform? There's a very good, there's a very good study out of the University of Pennsylvania, and here's what they did. They went to a large company, large software company. The large software company had a large sales force. They measured the introvert and extra le- the extroversion levels of the people in the sales force. Then the sales reps went out and sold software. So we know who the introverts are. We know who the extroverts are. We know how much every person sold. Here's what they concluded. That strong introverts were terrible at sales. Okay? I don't think that's a big surprise. Uh, but I think the bigger surprise is that strong extroverts were also terrible at sales. And, and, and then what's scary about that, as you say, is like it's a myth that, you know, that we, we tend to think that the people who do the best are these strong extroverts. The data don't bear that out. What the data show is that the people who do the best are people who are ambiverts, ambiverts, like ambidextrous. All right? This is, and, and one of the things that's going on is that we've gotten introversion and extroversion wrong. We think of it as binary, as off or on, as I or E, when in fact it's a spectrum. And what the research shows very clearly is that the people who do the best at sales are neither strongly introverted nor strongly extroverted. They're in the middle. They are ambivert. And if we go back to this idea of being ambidextrous, think of it that way. They can use their left hand. They can use their right hand. What does this mean in terms of attunement? It means they know when to speak up. And they don't want to shut up. They don't want to push. They don't want to hold back. And so, as you say, this idea that strong extroverts are great at sales is flatly wrong. There's no evidence of that. In fact, there's evidence of the contrary. But it doesn't mean the strong introverts are better. They're actually a little worse. The people who do the best are people who are in the middle. Ambiverts, and the best news of all is that most of us are ambiverts. Most of us are neither very strong introverts nor very strong extroverts. We're in the middle. Big, big stuff. Well, I want to shift the conversation right now to when the scientific secrets of perfect timing. Why this book and why right now? Uh, writing a book is a big, as you know, is a big undertaking. You have to be, you have to have something that you really love working on, something that you want to live with for many, 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 many years, if not the rest of your life. And I actually wrote and threw away a couple of book proposals uh, in that time because I didn't feel like the ideas were big enough, bold enough interesting enough. But I finally came around to this idea. And it, the main reason that I wanted to write this book, no joke, is that I wanted to read it. I realized that I was making all kinds of when decisions in my own, my own life. Everything from when should I exercise during the day? When should I do in the day my most important work? Those kinds of daily when decisions, but also, you know, yearly when decisions. Why Why does, do a lot of people's well-being droop around midlife? Uh, why do beginnings matter? How can I make better endings of, of experiences? And so I realized that I was making these win decisions in a really haphazard way. Uh, but it turns out there's this very, very complicated but rich and deep body of science um, on tonic, from economics, social psychology, to a lot of work in medicine and biology uh, that can allow us to make systematically better win decisions in our life. And so I found from doing the research and writing this book that I'm now making far, far, far better win decisions in my own life. 
the big idea here is the following, that we tend, when we make decisions about our performance, about our lives, about our own happiness, we tend to focus on what should we do? How should we do it? Who should we do it with? And we make these questions of when, mm. secondary questions, uh, that are sort of sitting at the kid's table. And what, what I found in doing the research is that when belongs at the grown-up table, that these questions of when matter significantly. They matter on mm. how we perform in our jobs. They matter on how happy we are with our lives. Uh, they matter in almost every dimension of, of, of what we do. And so if we start taking these questions of when as seriously as we take questions of what and who and how, I think people are going to live better lives and work a little bit smarter. Interesting. There's so many different dimensions of that. Let me give you a couple of just like, you know, let's be really practical and tactical for your, your listeners here. So for instance, having studied this subject, I would never allow anybody in my family to willingly go into a hospital in the afternoon or to the morning. Here's what happened. Doctors make four times as many anesthesia errors at 3 p.m. as they do at 9 a.m. Incidents of hand washing declines dramatically in the afternoon compared with the morning. Far higher number of surgical errors in the afternoon and in the morning. You look at something like colonoscopy, and doctors find half as many polyps in the same population in the afternoon exams as they do in the morning exam. There's a rapid deterioration in performance in hospitals in the afternoon. That's one very specific, very practical takeaway on that. Uh, another really practical wow. takeaway is that is that we don't, uh, when we think about breaks, okay, we, the science of breaks is powerful. And what it shows us very clearly is that we need to start treating breaks with much greater seriousness. I'm talking about breaks during the day. Uh, the way I look at it is this, that remember 15 years ago, somebody who didn't sleep, who pulled all-nighters, who came into the office saying, oh, I only got two hours of sleep last night. That person we would look at as a hero. Uh, that person was so dedicated, so committed. And now that we understand the science of sleep, if they know that person's an idiot, that person is hurting his own performance, he's hurting other people's performance. The science of breaks is where the science of sleep was 15 years ago. And what it shows us is that we need to start thinking of breaks as part of our performance rather than a deviation of performance. And a very specific practical thing mm. people can do on that front is to make a break list. Write down the two or three breaks you're going to take during the day. Write it down, schedule it, and treat it with the seriousness with which you uh, schedule meetings. Uh, we also know a lot more about breaks. Taking a break with somebody is more is better than taking without somebody, with a, with a friend. Going outside is better than being inside. That moving is better than being stationary that being fully detached is better than being only partly detached. And how long? There, there's no magic number to that, unfortunately. I wish that there were. Basically, research shows that something is better than nothing. So if you can get like a 15-minute break, 20-minute break, a couple times a day, you're going to perform at a higher level. So is it the time of day that really matters, or is it the number, the how long someone's been working? That's a great question. One of the things, let's go back to handwashing for an example. One of the things that can, that can pick hand-washing back up in the afternoon is taking breaks. It's unclear exactly what's causing all of this, but one of the remedies seems to be giving people a break. So, for instance, there's some interesting research out of Denmark showing that kids score systematically lower standardized tests when they take them in the afternoon versus the morning. And But the, a good remedy for that is giving kids a 20 to 30-minute break before they take the test. So part of it is basically our circadian rhythms, diurnal variations, 
uh, make the, the afternoon a precarious time in general. And part of it, as you suggest, is just simply people being out of task for a long time uh, and losing some of their vigilance. Yes. Well, where do you want people to go, Daniel, to connect with you or check out the book? I think you just come to my website, which is danielpink.com, D-A-N-I-E-L-P-I-N-K, danielpink.com. All things pink. And then last little question here, on the topic of self-discipline and timing, do you feel like you personally are seeing data that would suggest that you're more likely to do your tax return, make the sales call, do the workout, balance your finances, early in the day than later in the day or do you, is that kind of inconclusive or not you have you not looked at anything enough to, to be able to even address it yeah no i i can't address it and and again some of it depends so for instance what we have are it's very similar to what we were talking about with uh introvert and extrovert so some of us are marked that is we rise relatively early we peak during the early part of the day and then wear out a little bit others of us are out that is, we take a longer, we wake up a little bit later and we reach our peak later in the day. Um, what the research shows is that most of us are in between. Most of us are neither larks nor out, but third birds, right in between. Hmm. For people who are larks and for people who are third birds, you're generally better off doing your head down focused analytic work in the morning. That seems very, very clear to me. Um, and save your, uh, some of your mundane work for the early afternoon, which is often a trough for people. And then maybe some of your more creative work for the rebound, which often occurs around four or five. So typically the pattern of the day is a peak, a trough, and a rebound. Um, what's interesting is that the people who are owls, and, and there are about one out of five of us are strong owls. For people who are owls, the pattern goes the reverse. So you basically have a recovery, trough, and peak. So they're often better off doing their head-down analytic work, the tax returns, whatever, um, you know, maybe beginning at four or five in the afternoon. But again, for most of us, um, it's um, you're better off doing your head down analytic work uh, in the morning, clearing the deck, doing what Cal Newport calls your deep work then, and then pushing everything else to later in the day. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much, man, just for your work and your, your science and your data and your objective, uh, creative but objective empirical view on the world. Uh, you constantly are pushing us to think differently. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. And to stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and on Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. And thanks for listening.